0: Welcome to episode 32 of the Going For Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Guys, before we begin today's episode, I have an exciting giveaway to announce. I've teamed up with my partners at Hunting Beast Gear and Stealth Outdoors to put together an incredible prize package. One grand prize winner will win the following Ultimate Mobile Hunting Gear giveaway. The prize package includes a Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand, four Beast Gear Climbing Sticks with Weight Reduction holes. The Beast Tree Stand Silencing Kit from Stealth Outdoors, four Beast Stick Stealth Strips, and four Buckle Silencers. To enter the giveaway, join the Going for Broke Outdoors newsletter. There will be a link and instructions in the description. And subscribe to the Going for Broke Outdoors YouTube page. You must do both to be entered. For those of you who are already subscribed and have already joined the newsletter, no further action is required. Additionally, you can earn bonus entries for every $25 spent at stealthoutdoors.com and huntingbeastgear.com by using the code GoingForBroke. broke That's G-O-I-N-G, the number four, B-R-O-K-E, with no spaces. And lastly, earn bonus entries by following the going for broke Instagram page, link in the description. Entry into the giveaway will close when my YouTube channel reaches 1,500 subscribers, so subscribe today before it's too late. On today's podcast, I welcome Jace Allen to the show jace hails from missouri and is 27 years old but has an incredible resume for a hunter of his age including a few boon and crockett caliber animals going against the times jace relies almost entirely on woodsmanship and glassing rather than trail cameras to locate and target mature deer in this episode jace and i dissect his methods discuss early season tactics finding vulnerabilities in a mature bucks area jace's approach to ground hunting and his plans for 2023 And last note, I want to thank everyone listening for the continued support. If you're listening on an audio-only platform like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I would generally appreciate a review of the podcast on your favorite audio platform. Finally, I want to give a huge shout-out to Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com and Hunting Beast Gear at www.huntingbeastgear.com for partnering with my podcast to put together such an amazing prize package. Now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Jace Allen. Jace, how are you doing today?
1: Pretty good, man. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. For people who aren't already familiar with you, give us a brief introduction and how you became involved in the outdoors.
1: Well, my name is Jace Allen. I grew up in a town called Bonterre, Missouri. Got my start in hunting. Um, you know, my grandpa hunted, my dad hunted. So it's kind of a heritage thing for me. Every year going into uh, Washington County uh, rifle season, you know, we had our our big deer camp and, you know, that's, that's where I started hunting and then kind of developed and, you know, I started hunting with a bow, started going out on my own, you know, on my own adventures. Went to college in 2014 and really set out on my own, started hunting some public land Whenever I first started venturing out on my own, um, I was carrying a recurve around, um, didn't have a tree stand, just hunted off the ground. You know, it was a big challenge to just kill a, you know, a deer back then. And as I've gotten older and you know spent more time in the field, you know, I uh, I picked a compound back up, I picked a stand up here in 2019, and uh, things have just kind of blossomed from there.
0: We need to address a pretty serious topic up front here. When I first started seeing your post on social media, you had a pretty rad looking mullet. So inquiring minds want to know what happened to the mullet and when are you going to make that a comeback for that?
1: Uh, The mullet got hot uh, in the summertime. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a bitch to deal with. I I don't know if we'll, if we'll see it again. I I got, I got a decent one going on right now. I decided to let my hair go out for, (laughs) uh, for deer season. So that way I don't get cold during the late season, but we're past that now. So I don't know. We'll see.
0: It was pretty easy to recognize you on social media back then. That's probably when I first started noticing your name popping up in some of your posts. So, mm-hmm. now the mustache it will always be here.
1: All right, we got half
0: the half the outfit complete. Then, yeah, I was I was
1: primed out. Then I guess I'm past my prime now.
0: <laughs> well, on a more serious topic, Jace, my last guest on the show, Ethan Eskew. He's like you. He's a relatively young guy, but you've both already taken some really nice deer. So I'm interested in the story of what you'd consider to be your first big buck. And specifically, I'd like to know the story on that deer, how you found it, how you killed it, and what did you learn from that experience?
1: Sure. So my first big buck, I'm actually looking at him right now. It's about a 100 and you know low 140 10 pointer. This was back in 2010. So 2010 was actually the first year that i had set out on my own and i was hunting on my own but you know it wasn't any of the spots that i had found you know it was spots that you know my dad showed me on a piece of private ground uh, there in washington county and uh it was early season september the 18th i'm out there and i would never shot a deer with a with a bow before and September the 18th, I went out, this is a cattle farm, so there's uh, fields that are fescue and then the rest of it's, you know, big timber, pretty big hills in there. So the plan was, you know, get to a place where, you know, there was a bunch of grass that the cows hadn't messed with for a while. And this was one of my, you know, favorite spots to go. I have a lot of good memories, you know, with my dad there, you know, growing up hunting. And uh, September the 18th, I went there and I shot my first doe with a bow. And the next evening I went back to the same spot and I shot that deer. It was a phenomenal hunt. Just the, you know, the adrenaline that I can remember from that, you know, having to come apart whenever the thing that, you know, 25 yards, it was really cool. I guess what I learned from that was, and I still need to, you know, take some of my own advice today, but sure, you know, sometimes you have to sit in a spot a couple of days to let that spot work, you know. Not necessarily all the time, you know, is a spot going to work the first time that you're in there.
0: Sometimes you gotta
1: give it a couple of days. So I guess that was one of my big uh one of my big takeaways from from that experience.
0: Yeah, and I do a lot of mobile hunting myself, and that's kind of been a recurring theme. So a lot of the guys that I know so I've found the hunting beast forum pretty regular, you're probably at least familiar with Dan and Falter's forum. And Mm -hmm. when I first started joining that, the emphasis is on mobility, right? Move around, fresh sits. And I probably took that to an extreme. I know a lot of people that also follow the Hunting Beast, their first couple of years did the same thing. Now I've trended back towards what you're saying is certain areas, right? And to me, and maybe you can fill in some features that would make an area good for multiple hunts. So obviously some areas don't set up well for multiple hunts, but some do. So what do you look for in an area if you're going to sit multiple times, what's important to you?
1: I guess the most important thing, you know, I know it's been said a, a bunch of times, but you have, have to have a good access, you know, good, you know, entry and exit route because, you know, you tromp through there a couple times and, you know, it doesn't take too long before, you know, the deer catch on to you. You know, that can go the same for early season, you know, that can go for the rut, you know, and the rut, the doe group that's in that area, you know, if they catch on to you, then they'll just move around you and because the bucks are following the does, they'll start going around you as well.
0: Sure. Do you got any setups where you've got really good bulletproof access? And if so, what do those look like? Any train features or water or anything that's helping you keep your access clean?
1: You know, here in the last couple of years, I I can't say I could think of some that I could that I could do, but I, I don't really have like one Like, go to spot anymore. That's just, you know, a year in, year out, you know, place that I go hunt anymore. You know, kind of like we were saying, you know, about the mobile hunting. You know, I want to go to new spots and experience new things. I guess just some, you know, general good access is, you know, where you don't cross any deer trails. You know, while you're there, you know, the deer, the deer don't wind you. You know, water's phenomenal access. Going up a really steep draw, like you just said, you know, that's really phenomenal access. But I don't really have that good of an example off the top of my head.
0: I think those are some more common ones that people are aware of, but it's always good to reiterate. And if nothing else, just thinking intelligently or critically through your access, I think that's always real important as well. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about timing of the season. Uh, I've listened to some of your other podcasts and I think I already know the answer, but for people that haven't listened to those podcasts, do you have a favorite part of the season? Are you a early season, a rut, a late season? And and why is that particular point of the season your favorite?
1: Oh man. I really do love every time of the year. You know, every time of the year, you know, has its advantages, has its disadvantages. in the last couple of years, it's really been early season as far as killing these big bucks on public land. I love late season at heart. I think it's awesome time of year to be out. You know, there's less pressure, you know, in the woods. You can get away with more things scent-wise just because, you know, whenever you have those, you know, dry, cold conditions, you know, there's less scent coming off your bodies.
0: Yeah, I agree 100% with that.
1: Yeah, and, you know, also the the uh, wind will flow through the woods a lot better, you know, in contrast to early season where, you know, you have all this foliage on, And it's hard to get your scent out of where you're at, you know, unless you're, you know, on an evening hunt and, you know, you have a good thermal drop or something like that.
0: Nothing like hoofing it through the hills early season, getting all sweaty and then have your scent pooling all over.
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, It's definitely burned me quite a few times, but for my goals now, I'd have to say early season is probably my favorite just because. You know, these deer, you know, they haven't been messed with all summer. You know, they're still somewhat on their summer pattern. And I like to find patterns. You know, I I like to reason things. And so I'm going to say really season for that.
0: I don't know how familiar you are with me personally, but I actually lived in Michigan most of my life. And I moved out to Montana about four years ago now. And Michigan, they have a set date opener. So the archery opener is always October 1st. But in Montana, archery opener is always the first Saturday in September. So sometimes it's the first and the latest is the seventh. And I tell you what, one, Montana has way lower pressure. And two, night and day difference for me in early season is now my favorite time also. And so I had a a biologist, and I've mentioned this once or twice before on the podcast, but I had a biologist from Penn State on, and he talked about home range size. And in September, before the pre-reup, before the deer shed their velvet and really start moving around a whole lot, They've got really small home ranges, so I'd like to hear your experience with that because it seems like to me, and I always say this too, feast or famine, Like if you're on the bucks early season, you're on them, and and a lot of times more than one, but if you're not, you're not on them at all. So What's your experience been like locating deer, and how do you approach those early season hunts?
1: As far as locating deer, I have a bunch of time to go out and, and glass during the summer you know, I get behind the spotting scope, you know, I might get really up high in a tree to where I can see a long ways. You know, I, I want to use my eyeballs early season. That's going to give me the best information. I think in the past, you know, whenever I'm doing like my uh, winter scouting or whatever, you know, I'm, and this, this is like not in, not in like hill country. You know, I go out and, you know, I find beds and I'm like, oh, cool. You know, there's, you know, this is a phenomenal bedding area. You know, this I'm going to find deer here in September. And I find out Pretty quickly after doing that, you know that's not uh that's not the way to t- to do things it just doesn't work,
0: yeah, elaborate on that a little bit. Why have you found for you that doesn't work out
1: for me that doesn't that doesn't work out because there's so much foliage growing in the growing in the summer, and when I'm talking about foliage like uh you know deer like the high stem count stuff right yep, so like a lot of these deer that i run into early season now, they're living in things like such as a CRP field and if I'm going out right now, you know, trying to predict, you know, what fields are going to be um, a CRP field and what fields are going to be crop fields, because, you know, here in Missouri on, on the public lands, you know, they'll, they'll rotate different fields, you know, year in, you know, year out, you know, some years it's beans, some years corn, you know, some years it's, it's uh you know, they just leave it and it's CRP and uh trying to go out early here in the here in the year and, you know, walking through the, walking through the timber and, you know, you might find a couple of beds, you know, and, and like some greenbrier or, or, or whatnot. And you're like, cool. You know, there's bedding here. Well, for one, they might not be that far back already. And for two, so much is going to change from year to year. It's getting that real time information is, is what you need. You know, not last year's knowledge, if that makes sense.
0: One, I couldn't agree more. I always like to describe postseason scouting for me that's like finding a ballpark, but in season scout uh-huh. in season scouting for me is playing the game
1: yeah now i I do feel like I can target places for other times of the year, so as far as like the rut goes, you know you can go out and you can find rut funnels here during your winter your winter scouting months, and you know those are going to be relevant during the rut, but for early season for my favorite part of the year, it doesn't apply,
0: yeah, like you said, there's so much variety from year to year and the areas you're going to find bachelor groups are going to be dependent on what the preferred food source is the water availability pressure a lot of things mm-hmm. that, that vary quite a bit from year to year
1: yeah i guess uh to answer the second part of your question as far as like the size of the deer's range you know i'm still i'm still working on that one yeah you know, i've seen deer where you know the ranges are huge you know some of the ranges are small you know, whenever I was in Kentucky this past year, um, hunting the two deer that I were hunting, those two deer, they never left an area that was probably, oh shoot, I don't know, 30, 40 acres, something like that.
0: Yeah, and I guess I should qualify the statement I made. The biologist, when I said they have small ranges, that was September specifically, and those ranges, these are GPS collared deer, the ranges expanded dramatically as anyone would assume october and november but i think he said the home range size was like a section so 600 acres but the core area where they spent 90 percent of time within that 600 acres was only like 100 acres so that's why i feel like either you're on them or you're not and when you're on them that's kind of what i was getting at how do you get that close on on a small home range in september and not booger it up
1: basically what i've adopted here in the last couple of years is what i was talking about you know observations that basically I want to know exactly what that deer does and him have no idea that I'm ever there. And, you know, a lot of that is, you know, long distance glassing. If I can help it, if there's, you know, areas that I know that, you know, these deer live in early season, you know, I am not going to go in there and get boots on the ground, just to get boots on the ground. You know, I'm going to sit back at a distance, watch these things. And then, Whenever I see an opening or, you know, whatever might be the case, you know, that's when I make my, that's when I make my move in and whenever I do make my move in, it's all in. So it's either I kill the deer the first time or, you know, I booger them.
0: You said something there that was important to me too. And this is a mistake that I feel like some guys make. It's a mistake I've definitely made in the past. If you've identified an area where target deer is at from glassing or from you know, cell cams or whatever your deer locating preference is. Boots on the ground at that point, especially early season is, is a bad idea. And I think some people just want all that extra intel and what they do is that's a lot of times that's equivalent to a hunt, right? You go in there, you want a little more information and then you end up blowing it out before you even hunt it.
1: Right. Well, I've seen some guys like they'll see these deer in the summer and then they'll go in and they'll like try to, and they'll like find their beds. It's just like, Why? you know
0: right i don't really understand it you can make some pretty good inferences from your glass and which sounds like you're doing and, and then keep that area clean until the hunt day which that's my preferred way to go about it as well mm-hmm. well let's uh switch topics here if my sources are correct it's kind of on the same topic locating deer but you're not much of a trail camera guy from what i hear is that correct That is correct. We're in the minority. I'm not much of a trail camera guy either. Nothing against guys that are using them. Uh, It's illegal. It's available technology. But it's a little surprising. So you didn't mention your exact age, but I think you're, you're younger than I am for sure. I am 27. So 27. It seems to go against the norm a little bit for a younger guy not to be leveraging that technology when everyone seems to be kind of trail camera crazy these days. So why have you chosen to limit your trail camera usage?
1: Well, I mean, I I never grew up, you know, around trail cameras. You know, my my dad started me off. You know, we we go and you know we go find here. You know, we go find sign, and you know we we reason with that and why I don't use them now. And this is getting to be a harder and harder challenge for me, just because you know I want to I want to chase after you know larger class of animals, but it's just to me it is a like, let's just say if I had, if I had trail cameras and that's all I knew. And, you know, one day they were taken away. Like, what, what am I left with after that? A lot of these guys that I see now, you know, that's their whole, that's their whole process. And, you know, I don't mean to hate on any, on anybody, you know, like you said, it's it's legal, you know, it's a tool, it's a good tool, um, you know, knock yourself out. But I feel like sometimes, you know, I I go against the grain of things just to, you know, go against the grain. You know, it's kind of like me it's kind of like me wearing a flannel, sure. you know, while while these while these other guys are wearing thick suits. Now, I am hating on them. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just keeping the the woodsmanship side of things, you know, alive and keeping that going. If trail cameras is all I had and and that's all I knew, I I don't think I would be in love with it as As much as I am, you know, you know, don't get me wrong. I do love, you know, I love going out scouting, you know, I love looking at tracks, you know, that's one reason why I do love late season is tracks. You know, I I don't know what it is that, you know, makes me click with those, but for so many people out out there and, you know, for as, as many, you know, new technologies and whatnot that are being, that are being used today, there's just something about that old time, just the the deer hunting part of it, you know, the part where you actually, you know, you go out and you hunt the deer. That is thrilling to me. You know, that's what hooked me in the, in the first place. If it was something like I watch a deer on a trail camera, you know, for a couple of days and, you know, I go kill him because he's been daylighting or whatever on that camera, it, it's going to cheapen the experience for me.
0: I'm the same way. And again, not hating. I mean uh, to each their own it is a great tool it's an effective tool but I've found so I haven't used a camera and I've used them before for sure never sell cameras but again nothing against people using cell cameras but I haven't used one since I moved out here and part of the reason is some of the areas that I hunt are geographically far away so it's you know it's inconvenient or it costs a lot of money some of the areas that I hunt, they are only open during the the hunting season. So you can't get on them outside of that. So there's, you can't run cameras on those. And then the other thing is I found out, I just really, not for everybody, but I generally enjoy being surprised when I see a deer for the first time. Like, wow, look at that thing. Didn't, you know, had no idea that was around.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I love that too. Sometimes that's led me to shot, you know, shooting smaller deer than I meant to, cause I got excited, but you know, Hey, that you know, that's part of the game. <laughs>
0: And the other thing, and I've talked about this with my friends, maybe I mentioned this on the podcast, let's say just for an example, I have a camera out and I've got three bucks that I would shoot, but one is quite a bit bigger than the other one. I feel like I'm going to be less happy or not even shoot maybe buck number two or number three, where otherwise I'd be very happy with those. But because I know, let's say there's 180 inch deer around, I'm not going to shoot a 150 and otherwise I'd be thrilled to shoot that. So
1: Right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's part of the, you know, advantage to trail cameras is, you know, you have that knowledge of, you know, what's, what's in there. Not saying that you can't get that information otherwise, but, you know, depending on your topography or where you're at, you know, let's say you're, you know, in, you know, I, I hunted New York a little bit, um, you know, very briefly last year. And it's just like, if you want to target a bigger animal there, gouting's probably not going to, probably not going to cut it. You know, you need, you know, you need intel that, you know, that, that deer is there. So.
0: Yeah. That's a great point. Geography plays a big role in that. I know in Michigan, a lot of deer, but the age structure isn't there. So to find a bigger act deer, definitely harder. And it's not as glassing friendly, obviously as Montana, you know, the open spaces. So definitely a place for, for trail cameras. And then the other thing I heard you mention on another podcast, you might add cameras and you kind of alluded to that earlier here. Into the mix on out of, out of state hunts where you don't have the time to glass or you don't know the areas as well, just to target the caliber of deer that you're after on these shorter duration hunts. So if you do that, what's that gonna look like for you?
1: You know, boy, that's a that's a good question. Um I've seen the power of cell cameras and you know what real time, you know, information can do. I don't know if I would go that route or just run or just run regular regular cameras but I mean what that would kind of look like for me is you know I you know it just be uh, you know casting the you know the net a little further and uh, I ideally you know I would like to leave a camera over there for like a year and you know like let it soak you know do like that method sure you know like hang it over a scrape or you know a you know well-used trail or you know something like that just so I have some just so I have some intel on, you know, timing of that spot or whatever, you know, else information, you know, I can get from it. Now, if I had, if I had cell cameras and, and I haven't really thought about this a whole lot, cause I'm still on the fence, that might be a completely different story. So I don't really know.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine. Just curious. Cause I'm in the same boat. So I've got a couple areas now that I've learned pretty well in montana where i i know there's going to be a solid deer in there i don't know what it's going to be but i don't have to run a camera because there's going to be a deer in there probably and i'm still at the point where like anything over 140 i'm definitely shooting so i know i'm going to run into a a deer like that sooner or later on one of these properties so i don't feel like i'm there yet but if i get to the point or decide to in the future where let's say i only want to shoot 160s i think i'm gonna end up in the same same predicament because Those deer get a lot harder to find, period. So I'd like to hear your experience on this, because in Missouri, I imagine, and this would be kind of a hypothetical, let's say you're on 10 different parcels and you find good sign on four of those. Well, three of those deer might be 130, 140 type mature deer, and one could be 160 plus, right? But it's hard to differentiate that just based on the sign. That's where the cameras really help, I think, clue you into like, okay, I want to focus my time on this parcel that's got the big one.
1: Yeah, I mean that's exactly why you know I would use trail cameras. I'm getting to a point, you know, I I love shooting good deer, but you know, of those four spots, you know, you hit it right on the head. You know, to me, you know, an average deer, uh, or an average, you know, mature buck, you know, a buck that's you know four years old or older, is probably going to be around 140. And you know, of those ten parcels, if I'm trying to chase after and Boone and Crockett class deer. Those four parcels might, might you know, even though they're they're good, you know, they're good pieces of ground and they have mature deer on them, they still might not have that class of deer on them, and that's where the trail cameras, that's where they shine. So you know, you can focus your time in on those places that have the deer that you you know that you want to chase, and you know that's where the whole you know trail camera thing is is going for me is just having the knowledge that that deer is there, because in Missouri, early season, you know, whenever whenever I have all summer to glass, you know, I can I can find a deer that I want to chase here. But let's say beyond that, like like let's say the rut, you know, it's, and let's say especially late season, just finding that deer is so valuable because most of my late season was spent just simply searching, and I searched and searched and searched, and I found some places where I thought a four year old was living but i have no idea what they had on their head because i never saw them
0: it's not like montana i joke around and tell people there's a booner behind every tree but i live in the plains area and there's hardly any trees so
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that in missouri too i people, I think people get the impression in the midwest like more so iowa and kansas but missouri too i know you guys have two buck tags and, and a fair amount more pressure and hunting or gun season during the rut and stuff so that makes it tougher but I think people get the impression if they haven't hunted these states, like, oh, it's easier. There's big bucks everywhere. But, I mean, you would have as good of idea as anyone. That's that's not the case. So I understand what you say when you're searching around, just trying to find a deer that you're interested in hunting. Yeah. That's uh, funny because Ethan, on the last episode, he's in West Virginia, but he talked about the same thing. He said, or one of the biggest time-consuming parts of his process is just finding a deer to hunt. Yeah. So that's a good segue. Obviously, you're relying more on woodsmanship than technology. So in the absence of trail cameras, we've talked about glassing already, but what are some tactics or techniques that you use to locate target bucks? And, and let's talk about that first, but I'm also interested in what gets you excited as far as sign rubs, scrapes, tracks, observations, some combination, all of all those
1: well, let's see. I mean, it's going to depend on the, on the time of year. Like if I'm just going out scouting, let's say I'm in, you know, here, here this year, you know, I'm in, I'm in Illinois and I'm just looking for a, for a mature buck. Let's see. I was there, I was there late season. So in a late season setting, I am going to go, go around and like the first thing I do whenever I get to a property is I'm going to identify all, all the food sources. And Then whenever I identify all the all the food sources, I'm gonna go looking for tracks. And I can't tell you exactly like what size track, you know. You hear you know like four finger track or, or you know whatever, throwing around all the time. But if I'm if I'm seeing one that's like that's like over three, like you know three and a quarter, three and a half, you know something like that. Not you know it's not an exact science. That gets me excited in a late season setting. Whenever I find that on a whenever I find that. Um, that track on a food source you know that lets me know that there is a bigger body deer in the area not all bucks you know with big racks have big tracks like if i was trying to do that in in kentucky you know it wouldn't it wouldn't work because the buck i killed like had the track smaller than a doe
0: yeah let me stop you real quick right there and that's a great point because big track almost always means at least big body but not necessarily big rack and the other thing that i've noticed personally is i've hunted fair amount across the midwest again all the way west to montana now and the deer while they're similar the hoof size does vary so like a big track in montana is an average track in the midwest so when i'm looking at tracks i'm looking for big relative to that immediate area what I'm in. So if I see a hundred sets of tracks, I'm looking for the three or five biggest ones.
1: Yeah. So like I'll, uh, I'll switch over to, um, that same property in Washington County, you know, that, that I've been talking about tracks and that train have no bearing on what I do because in that particular area, the soil content is, they have a lot of flint, a lot of chert, and that really grinds down the deer's feet. And so, like, the size of the track has nothing to do with how big the body is. Like, they, they only get so big, and then their feet get get grounded down. So, what gets me excited there, and, you know, I'll, I'll talk about, like, the lockdown phase of the rut. Or around November the 15th, you know, when, when rifle season starts here in Missouri. And kind of how I go about, you know, finding a mature buck there. Let's see. So, I figure these these deer, whenever they move into an area around that time, I, I still look for the freshest sign because to me, there's a certain population of deer that, that move around and they'll kind of like establish their rut range. And I've noticed a lot of times, you know, sometimes, you know, you find those, you know, that sign in like late October. But I found if you can find something that's like made like November the 8th or like the 10th or something. And it's like red hot. It's like, okay, this buck is rutting in this area. And more often than not, he's, he's locked down with a doe somewhere in that area. You know, let's just call it 40 acres or, you know, a hundred, 200, 300, whatever. So I know that property well enough to where I can go to main travel hubs and you know, whether that's a saddle on a ridge, you know, whether that's a whether that's a knob, you know, a thermal hub. And I'll go to those places and I'll look for I mean, really, you know, a lot of rubs specifically. Sometimes scrapes it, it just kinda depends on the it just kinda depends on the place. But there's uh there's places with historic rubs and if I can find new rubs that are relatively the same size especially if they're, if they're overlaying those old rubs, it's like, okay, you know, this deer is here and then I have this area. And then from there, you know, I start circling that area until, until I find that deer. So last year in November, there was a certain ridge that, and this is a scrape scenario. So oh. I know that from based on, you know, what's happened there in years past from experience, there's this one scrape and if it's opened up then I know that there's a mature buck you know using that area to rut and and I've learned over time you know how to how to hunt that whenever there is a buck in that in that area because the draws in there um, are really really thick and nasty and you know if you get in the if you get in the bottom of those you know the wind starts swirling and whatnot and that's where these deer are but I've also learned, you know, where these deer cross this certain ridge, you know, so I can get up high, you know, get my wind up and out of there and, you know, have have an advantage on the deer.
0: Real quick, I want to touch on two things you said there. The first one was circling an area. What do you mean when you say circling an area? Are you bouncing around within like five acre, 10 acre chunks? you doing something else. What's that mean to you?
1: To me, that means that could be a pretty immediate thing or that might be a little more drawn out process, you know, just depending on what area of that of that farm that that, that sign is in. So like I'll use an example, um, two years ago, I killed a buck, you know, he's got really big brow tines, and he's got this big antler coming out of his eyeball.
0: I've seen that. That's a sweet buck.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a really cool deer. So that one I had a gun, and that also influences what i what I do as well whether I have a gun or a bow, and also what what the conditions are for that day. I could get pretty long winded on on that one if you wanted me to, but when i'm whenever I'm you know like going through an area um let's just say that buck in in particular whenever I found that sign, you know there was I was going along this fence line, and I knew there's there'd been rubs just right off in this draw, you know, historically, and I was passing by it and I saw there was, you know, new rubs there. I mean, like dead fresh. And I'm just like, okay, I've hunted this in the past. And so my plan was for the next couple of days, I was going to bounce around to the better spots that I knew for deer. And that's how I was going to go about that. Like we were saying, a lot of this is just about locating a deer that you want to chase. And then whenever you do find that area it's like kind of like working on this theory a little a little bit it's like doing your best job at just hunting deer which is still what you should do but you need to be in the areas where that bigger buck is at does that make sense
0: I think that makes sense so on that point the other thing that you said I'm going to back up a little bit now when we started talking about circling an area you mentioned the thick nasty draws and you found a spot on the ridge so I think that's important too is to find a vulnerability where you can have a a hunting friendly setup for the wind or whatever it is that's that's causing an issue so how do you go about finding those spots is there something you look for in like the train or the vegetation are these spots you've learned through observation over time some combination of that so let's say you're talking to me and I'm running into an issue where I'm getting winded, but I know there's a big buck in the area. What would be your advice to me? How do I find an area where this deer is going to be vulnerable? What's worked for you?
1: Well, I would say first is like hunting low in that kind of hill country, You know, especially if, if you have a bow in your hand. You're just kind of cutting your throat with that. Really what, what a guy should do is get up high to where you can get get the wind working for you, get the thermals working for you as soon as you get down low you know that wind starts swirling and it's and it's kind of a nightmare so if i can find somewhere where i can get the wind to work for me then that's going to be a good situation and most of that time you know hunting up higher on these ridges is going to be that answer so if i can find where these deer are are crossing a high point that's where i'm probably going to go it's going to be you know, like you just said, you know, a hunter-friendly spot to where if a deer does come through there, you know, I'm going to get them killed and they're not going to smell me. You know, if I'm in the bottom of the draw, you know, or some place where the wind's swirling, I have a lot, a lot less chance of ever even seeing that deer because, you know, just because the wind is swirling so bad. Sure. Sometimes, you know, it's trial and error on these spots. That deer that I was just talking about, you know, find where he crossed the ridge. I learned how a mature buck uses that area whenever whenever there is one riding in there. I learned that back in 2012, whenever I was hunting a different deer in there. So there was a, there was like an eight year span where there wasn't a mature buck using that area. But because I hunted that deer back in 2012, because I have that experience, I already knew, you know, I was a step ahead of him. You know, I already knew how he was going to use that area. And so that gave me the advantage. Sometimes if you are going into a new spot and, you know, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, this one can get kind of tricky. But if you're like, okay, I think this is the spot, you know, but you're not, you're not for sure. It might be a good idea just to back up, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Just in case, because if you see that deer and, you know, he's working this one trail and, you know, he's a hundred yards away that's not the end of the world, you know, because now you know where that deer is coming through and, you know, you can move in, you know, to kill that deer, you know, later on. Whereas, and I messed up on this one this year, it was actually one of the biggest frame deer I've ever had out in front of me. I went into this spot, it was a brand new spot. And usually what I see on, on this property and this kind of terrain is deer will use the harder transition line that's a little further up the ridge, even though a lot of times a lot of the sign is down lower on the ridge where it's a little more open. And so I'm thinking I'm thinking like, oh okay, well, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and get a get a step ahead of the game and you know walk past the sign and, you know, get up on this harder transition because so many times, you know, I I have sat back you know, I see a deer walk through and I don't get him killed. I was like, well, I'll just go ahead and you know sit up there. Well, guess what happened?
0: They're pretty good at that. Digging when he's a, yeah,
1: they're, <laughs> yeah, they're really, they're really good at that. I mean, I had a, yeah, that deer winded me at like 30 yards. You know, if I just would have backed up 20 yards, it was still pretty thick, but I would have been, I would have been giving up that harder transition, but I would have been covering the trail that had all the sign on it. And that was really the reason I was there. And if I, if I just would have backed up, I would have killed that deer the first time in there. But I got a little, you know, a little too crazy, a little too aggressive and that deer cracked me.
0: Well, and like you said too, if you sit back on the trail that had all the sign and he goes on the hard transition, as long as your access and your wind's good, then it gives you an opportunity to move in and maybe get another hunt there.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that totally would have been the case. Because I had a good access, you know, it was a, it was a kind of an unorthodox act, access. Some places where people normally don't come from, you know, if that deer would have worked that hard transition, you know, I could have easily got back in there the next day. I even know the wind was the same the next day and, you know, and I had a, I would have had a decent chance at that deer, but because I got over a little overly aggressive from the start, I messed up my opportunity,
0: so... Well, that's usually how we learn our best lessons is through the pain of experience. So I've only got about a million of those. I'm sure you do too.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I there was another one that happened, you know, a week before then I was covering this funnel that was like November the 8th. This was like early November. I'd went to this funnel. I found these big tracks coming through it. It was heading back towards the bedding area. So I'm like, okay, you know, this deer's coming through here in the morning. And I'm like, I can cover this trail really good. And if he comes on the other side of the funnel, you know, I'm not going to get him. And I was like, I was like, that'll be fine. Well, that deer, uh, came through, stopped a couple of feet short of my shooting lane. And, uh, like literally walked around my shooting lane, like did like a half moon, got back on the trail that I was hunting and kept <laughs> on going. Uh, except that time it, it didn't work because that deer, uh, never came back through. I don't know why I haven't, <laughs> And that's an area that I know like really, really well, and I didn't know that deer before then, and he has not been seen after, so
0: yeah, it wouldn't be fun if you killed them all though, would it?
1: yeah, I mean you know it it yeah, it'd be kind of neat, but you know <laughs> some of them gotta get away,
0: that's right, once in a while, yeah, once in a while, well, we're talking about mistakes, that's a good segue into something else I wanted to talk about, and I try to talk about this with everybody I have on. So obviously you're having quite a bit of success now. That's not always the case, right? When people are young, myself included, probably everybody listening. Mm -hmm. Generally, you don't have success right off the bat. So looking back, give me two or three of the biggest mistakes that you made early on. And with that in mind, how did those prevent you from having the level of success that you're having now? Or how did you adapt? So what are the mistakes and how did you adapt? I think one
1: of the biggest mistakes that I made is I, I really started making mistakes whenever I... I started going out on my own and I started, you know, making my own, you know, you you know, my own process, you know, my own process of thinking, like I said, one of the biggest mistakes I made was going out in the winter and scouting a whole bunch and thinking that I'm going to know what's going to happen that next season. Like I said, it just, it just didn't work. I think that was one of the biggest mistakes that I made
0: Let's talk about that a little more because so many people say postseason scout, postseason scout. Now I understand what you're saying. That's not all directly translatable, especially to a state with an early opener like September. What you see in February, March, April probably isn't going to translate. But did you learn anything from postseason scouting, or were you just applying it wrong? Maybe what what's your takeaways there?
1: I think I was just applying it wrong because it did sure up the. The fact that, you know, deer, you know, do bed, you know, in certain places, you know, for a certain reason, like, let's just say, you know, wind direction, you know, like this hillside will be good, you know, for a deer to bed on a, on a South wind. And this went on for an entire season. This was like three years or three or four years ago or, or something like that. Um, is what I would do is I would have that spot in mind, like where that deer or, you know, where that bed was on that hillside, you know, it'd be September, whatever. And I would go in and try to make a play on that bed or that bedding area. And that was based completely on information that I'd found from the, from the previous spring. And it took me a a long time to figure out that it's the real time scouting information is, is what you need.
0: Give me one or two more mistakes that you made early on. So we talked about Doing the postseason scouting and maybe that wasn't applying completely during the season. What's something else? Maybe maybe one other thing that you did early on that that kind of hindered your success that you're not doing anymore.
1: Well, this might be a little different one, but not taking the time to study a deer's anatomy or um, shot placement on deer. I have a specific example back in the day. Um, I was hunting over a scrape. I was hunting on the ground and this giant eight pointer, uh, was walking, was walking in and he was quartered two and he stopped at like 15 yards and I already have my bow drawn back and I guess believing what other people tell you and, you know, not taking it with a grain of salt, you know, that was the ultimate mistake because. And I had this new, you know, compound. It was like, you know, when the, whenever the PSE Evo, you know, came out with, you know, the past parallel limbs and you hear all this stuff about, you know, oh, well, I can, you know, blow through the shoulder of a deer, you know, with these new bows, you know, they're so fast and so powerful. You know, I'm like, I'm like, all right. You know, so that's what's going on in my head. Sure. And this deer comes in and my pin goes behind Behind the deer shoulder, and I'm like, well, I don't want to shoot him that far back, and it goes in front of the deer shoulder, and I'm like, well, I don't want to shoot him that too far forward, so I'm like, screw it, you know, my bow can, you know, can do this, and I put my pen around that deer shoulder, I shoot, and I get about an inch and a half penetration, and you know, the deer runs off. So then a- after that, I really took the time to study a deer's anatomy because you know there's going to be quite a few you know different shots that you have, and if you if you talk to guys, it's like, oh, well, you know, what would you do? Let's just say, you know, like a frontal shot. I think most guys are probably going to aim too low. And by the way, I I don't feel comfortable taking frontal shots. I feel like that's a pretty low percentage deal there, just speaking personally. Sure. But so like, also, you know, like how far back do the lungs go? And something I learned last year was if the deer is like quartering two you know, you need to shoot them a little bit higher because those lungs, you know, go back, you know, into the deer's chest cavity. They also go up a little bit. Yep. And it got close to costing me a deer because I had one, this was a Illinois January buck and, you know, quartering two, and I shot him right behind the shoulder, you know, just slightly low, like I always do. And I'm lucky that I skimmed the heart like I did because I only hit one lung on that deer. So that was kind of eye-opening. I talk to buddies now, you know, they see an arrow, you know, hit a, hit a deer pretty high and, you know, they're thinking, you know, well, I had to hit that deer, you know, in the lungs, you know, was probably like below the spine. It's like, no, you gotta, you gotta realize like, you know, the spine is down there a little bit and there's vertebrae on top of that spine, you know, right, right in between where the, uh you know where the back straps are, yep you know that's a you know another thing that you know that I've learned throughout time, so I'm gonna say you know studying you know not really taking the time to study uh deers anatomy that's uh that's another mistake that i've that I've made in the past,
0: just to dovetail off what you said there, especially with the spine, something that I've found that a fair amount of people don't realize is that if you're starting from the back of the deer moving forward, as you get closer to the front shoulder, the vertebrae and the spine actually dips down quite a bit. So you got to be lower than you think up front to get into the lungs. And like you said, the farther you get towards the rear end of the deer, the lungs are actually higher. So yeah, those little intricacies can definitely make a difference on a tight shot.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, you mentioned ground hunting there. That was something else that I wanted to talk to you about. So Give me some of your best lessons learned hunting from the ground, and I'd like to know specifically what are the challenges for you and what do you think the benefits are?
1: You know, I've been waiting to, for somebody to ask me about ground hunting because, honestly, it's probably you know what I've done the most.
0: I'm a big fan. That's why I'm asking. I, anytime I can get tips yeah. from somebody else that's doing it, I'm interested. But I've killed quite a few deer in the last few right. years off the ground, and, and I love it. So, sorry, I'm babbling, but go ahead. The first
1: thing that I'm going to say is I'm going to make a distinction between actually making a setup on the ground and, you know, that versus stalking a deer. Stalking a deer is completely different from, you know, making setups on, on the ground. And, you know, I hear people that are asked questions and, you know, I'll pick on the, you know, hunting public for just a brief moment. I've heard them, you know, get questions asked in the past. What's some good tips for, you know, making a good ground setup? And, you know, they go into, you know, talking about stalking through landscape on, on deer. And I just wanted to make that, make that distinction. So I'm going to talk about best practices for making a setup on the ground. Okay. So whenever you're hunting deer on the ground, the first thing is we need to, is we need to learn about a deer's vision and where they detect danger at what degree and how far a deer can actually see, and then what they feel is safe after a a certain degree. So what I'm talking about is a deer can see, I believe it's 270 degrees around, but most of the time where they're actually, you know, detecting for danger is 180 degrees. And the first mistake I see people do all the time, and I mean all the time, is they want to set up on the ground like they set up for a tree stand hunt, which is you see the deer coming in, you draw while the deer is quarter two, and then you shoot them whenever they're broadside, and for hunting on the ground, that is suicide because you are in that deer's um you know range of view that they're still looking for danger, so if they pick up you know any sort of movement or anything, you know they're going to be alerted to it right away. So I would say the first thing that a guy needs to do, just wait, you know, a second. And really when you're supposed to draw is whenever that deer gets broadside or gets past you and really get, you know, letting that deer get past you to where you have a quarter and away shot. That's what you really need to do.
0: I agree completely. And my philosophy is draw real early or draw late because exactly what you said, if you're on the ground, especially... A lot of times I'm not hunting out of a natural ground blind or something that I've built. I'm kind of half spot and stock, kind of half still hunting a lot of times when I'm bow hunting on the ground. So I don't normally have a blind, you know, I'm tucking into cover or conifer or whatever yeah. I can. But if I see a deer, I, I either draw with its head down quite a ways early and just gamble. I can hold it as long as I'm going to need to, or yeah. I'm doing exactly what you said. And a lot of times that's a better option is to let that deer get by you and then draw, and the quartering away is a better shot angle anyways.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, like, if a deer is, like, let's say you're stuck in a situation, you know, you're still hunting, whatever, and you do have that deer, you know, working into you, it's really important to understand that, and I'll go into silhouetting here, in here in a second, but but if you have a deer coming in and you're in that, you know, danger range of view, like if that deer has its head up and it's just making a beeline towards you and if you plan on drawing before that deer gets there, you can either draw way early, like you said, or if that deer's eyeballs get behind something, you need to make sure that whatever that whatever is in between you and that deer, you need to make sure that is one hundred percent obstruction. Like I've seen I've seen people where you know, there'll be a deer, you know, like get behind like a little brush pile where it's like, you know, 50% obstruction and whatnot. And they think they're good to go ahead and draw. And then they draw and then it, you know, and then the deer catches them and they're like, you know, well, what the heck just happened?
0: They're acutely attuned to to movement at close distance like that. Hard to get away with anything.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I guess the next thing we're going to go into is silhouetting is extremely important. Like so important to the fact where. I would rather have 100% light obstruction behind me rather than like 50% you know light obstruction in front of me. So I've done it before where I've hunted out in the field and there's been two hay bales, you know, butted up together. Uh, kind of like, uh, kind of like, you know, teed off to each other. And I've sat right in that tee and deer look and they cannot tell what's going on. It's really the silhouetting and, and the shape and, you know, the, in that movement that's that's going to cost you. So let's just say, you know, somebody's hunting on a hill. I see a lot of times where people will, if they're hunting off the ground, for some reason they want to shoot downhill towards that deer. And really that's the wrong way to do things because if you're at the top of the hill looking down, you know, you're probably not going to be looking at daylight, you know, down below you. But if you look uphill, more than likely going to see daylight up there. And so really, you need to be downhill of that deer. And, you know, for the evening, it makes sense, too, you know, because your thermals are dropping. You know, so lighting is, is so important, you know, whenever it comes to, to ground hunting. I guess just to kind of summarize that thought, it's a lot more important to know whenever you're making up your plan of, you know, whatever kind of, you know, ground hunt you're going to do for the You know, the day is make a point to visualize where that deer is going to be at, and then where that deer is going to be looking at to you through you, and what's going to be behind you. Because, like, you know, I've seen a lot of people, you know, they'll just like hide behind a log, and you know, there's daylight underneath the log, and you know, on top of the log, and you know, they're they think they're fine and they're not. If I can get somewhere where there's always going to be something, you know, behind me, like, let's just say, you know, it's a, it's, you know, a little embankment, you know, or or a levee or, you know, something like that, something to where there's not any light getting through behind you. That is going to be your best odd situation. You know, you can get away with, if you're really careful on your movement, you know, you can get away with, you know, stuff that's maybe not quite, you know, like that, let's just say, you know, if you sit up in a brush pile, you know, with a bunch of, uh, you know, or a, or a treetop, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. It, it can kind of break up your outline that can work as well. But like I said, it's really what's behind you is what matters.
0: I'd agree a hundred percent. Yeah. More opaque, the better like large tree trunks in Montana for me, yeah. there's a lot of big cottonwood. So if I don't have a blind, I'm always trying to be tight to a, a large cottonwood or like I said, a dead fall, but hopefully the dead fall touches the ground. Like you said, you don't have that light coming in from underneath. You're right. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what they're picking up on is that silhouette of movement against light. So that's uh, great tips there for sure. I want to talk about in-season scouting because you're not using trail cameras. I'm not using trail cameras to me. In-season scouting, like you said, real-time info, that's huge. And you've got a more old-school approach for sure. So what does your in-season scouting look like? And second, so first, what does it look like? And second, how do you balance in-season scouting with putting too much pressure on an area? Because we kind of talked about that too. It's a a fine balance. So what are you doing there?
1: Yeah, so as far as like not not being too intrusive um, as far as like scouting an area, a lot of this is going to be perimeter-based. So, like, you know, let's just say, you know, let's go back to, you know, our our late season situation, to where you know, to where I'm I'm scouting, you know, and, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, where these deer are entering and and exiting, you know, a field. I'm not going to walk like 50 yards inside the inside the cover and try to find these and find these trails. You know, I'm going to stay out on the perimeter, you know, like uh, on the field edge, and uh, I can tell you. Pretty well, you know, where these deer are going to be, are going to be coming in and out just by staying on that perimeter. It's kind of the same thing as like, uh, finding the, the rubs and, you know, the old historical sign that I was talking about, you know, the hill country in, in Washington County, you know, staying in places where, you know, there's, you know, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a chance that there's sign there, but there's not also going to be deer bedding right there. Another thing could be like, scouting from where humans normally walk. So like scouting from walking trails, you know, that's something that, that I've found to be, you know, really effective. You know, even if it is close to a deer's bedding area, because, you know, they're used to humans being in that, in that place. And depending on how the walking trails, you know, lay out, lay out there, you know, if there's like dirt on the, on, you know, these walking trails or, you know, two tracks or whatever, that's a perimeter in a sense. I can't say that I specifically go in and like try to do like a bump and dump. I have done it before. It's mostly been on accident, but that's going to be, um, that's going to be what I'm, what I'm going to say. Like you do a lot of your scouting, like perimeter based.
0: Now, when you're doing perimeter based scouting in your home turf, obviously I'm assuming, you've already located a buck and you know he's in the area but what about on an out-of-state hunt what's your in-season scouting look like for example let's go a lot of people might not know uh, I I know and it's been public publicized pretty well you shot a really big buck in Kentucky early season this year so what's your in-season scouting look like there because I think I heard you say and maybe read it in the article or another podcast that you had never been to Kentucky so What's your process look like for locating a good deer on an out-of-state hunt? You're in-season scouting there.
1: So that was rather open country. So all of that scouting, it was zero boots on the ground. That was all, you know, identifying observation points and, uh, you know, doing like we were talking about earlier on the podcast and just, you know, getting in places where you can use your eyeballs as a form of scouting or, you know, boots on the ground. That's going to be my strategy there. Let's just say that this was a you know, a new piece of ground where I had to run in with that with that really big frame deer that I that I messed up on. I was using a creek to scout and navigate through this through this landscape. You know, that's kind of a you know, another form of perimeter based scouting. You know, there I was, you know, looking for rubs, scrapes, you know, hot hot sign. Um I think you get to a to a certain point where it's just it's kind of hard to define, you know, what what exactly your tactic of of scouting and is because, you know, that changes, you know, so much, you know, throughout the season.
0: We talked about tracks and then again, I'm going to go back to something that that makes sense to me and and I think other people have said this, but when I'm looking at tracks I mentioned, I'm looking at big tracks relative to the area and when I'm scouting for sign, I'm looking for concentrated sign relative to the area. So if I'm not seeing anything, and I see a group of three or four rubs, that catches my eye. But if I'm in an area that's all rutted up, you know, in November and there's sign everywhere, then I need to see even more. Is that is that how you're operating? I know you said it's different in every area, but it seems like that's a good baseline for me.
1: Yeah, I mean I would I'd say that's my that's my baseline as well. As far as like Kentucky goes, you know, my whole process there was, you know, there's there's quite a bit of time just spent in the car looking at what all different kind of cover the area had to, had to offer. You know, whether that be CRP, whether that be autumn olive, you know, whether that be corn, beans, you know, like these deer were in, whatever that may may be. So, I'm looking for the type of cover that these deer are going to be in to be in first in that instance is i was just looking you know trying to find general pattern of how these deer are living you know in in this environment and you know that that kind of went on you know beyond the public land because i want to get like a big picture view of you know what's going on and you know let's just say you know I'm a mile away i see a deer off the road or whatever you know that that's going to give me you know some some piece of information on, you know, what, like the general pattern could be. I eventually found out through observations that, that, you know, those deer, they were living in the soybeans part of the time. I think they were living in the corn the rest of the time, like I see, you know, in a lot of places, but that's just kind of how that, how that one turned out.
0: Now you bring up an important point there. And my buddy, Joel, he came on for an episode and we've been hunting out of state, quite a while now maybe closing in on a decade and boy we've made a lot of mistakes but one of the things that we have learned over time and that we implement now is exactly what you said especially in a new area it sounds like your first time in Kentucky your instinct at least mine was when you get to a new place is I gotta hunt I gotta hunt I gotta hunt but what we've learned and it sounds like you implemented too is take some time to learn the area because you're going to get so much more information in a day or two days or three days of doing that and that's going to help you really narrow down where you need to be because you can spin your wheels up pretty good if you're just tackling it. You know, the hundred percent of the map. You get some of those, like you said, big picture view. Okay, eighty percent of the deer and beans and corn. Well, now I can narrow down my focus pretty good.
1: Right, and as far as you know, finding you know the deer I end up shooting and the the one I was chasing. You know, that was that was in part of, you know, trail cameras. It was somebody else's trail cameras, but that's that's how those particular deer were located. So like what I wanted to do is I wanted to find the general pattern of that given area and and then apply it to where I knew these deer were and that ended up working for me, you know, extremely well.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's heck of a buck you got this year.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's pretty he's pretty nice. I'm looking at him right now
0: well jace we're we're kind of running up on time so two last things here first of all before we close it out speaking and looking at that nice buck where can people find you on social media if they want to check out your pictures and your hunts and your you post a lot of good stuff online too where can they find you at
1: so, uh, Facebook and and Instagram, uh, my name is Jace Allen, J A C E A L L E N. On Instagram, you can find me by name too, or by my beloved, uh, Instagram handle, Nature of the Beast. All these hunts that I'm doing, uh, they'll be on the Whitetail Addictions YouTube channel. Uh, my hunt from last year where I shot three deer, it's up, it's up on there, you know, ready for everybody's viewing. And in the future, the story of, the story of Mr. Krabs is going to be up there, up on there as well. So that's where you can find me.
0: That's awesome. And then I want to close out with, you set the bar pretty high for yourself, shot some great bucks the last few years. So what are your plans and goals for 23? What are you hoping to get done or where are you thinking about heading?
1: So I know exactly where I'm, where I'm going to head. Uh, whenever I do go back to Kentucky next year is I have a bone to pick with that deer that uh, the other deer that was giving me a, a good run for my money down there. So, <laughs> perhaps my first and foremost plans. Beyond that, I'm um, a little bit of fly by night. You know, I try to set some pretty high goals for myself to you know chase after. But you know, like this last year, you know my my goals changed because two years ago, you know, I shot two year that were you know in the Boone and Crockett class, and all of a sudden I had a really good opportunity to try to do it again. I got really, I got really, really close. You know, it didn't happen, but uh, I don't know. I guess we'll see. You know, if I do start using trail cameras out of out of state, you know, it might give me that little nugget of information that I, that I need to try to chase after another, another Boone and Crockett class deer, but uh, it's kind of hard saying, I guess we'll see.
0: Oh, it's awesome. Well, Hey, I want to thank you. Appreciate your time. Uh, tons of great information in this episode. I'm, I'm always excited to get them out, but some new stuff here that I don't think I've heard from some of my guests. So definitely excited to get that out and just want to turn it over to you. If there's anything else you want to say or things that you think are important before we wrap it up here,
1: I would say spend as much time as you can out in the field, use all the tools that you, that you can, you know, use your, you know, here in the last two years, you know, observation sits has been, you know, a huge part of my success. And, you know, I have to, you know, thank my friend, you know, Hunter Hogan for that. You know, you can find him on social media as well. He's the one that, that taught me that, you know, our eyeballs are really, really phenomenal tool for, you know, figuring out deer and, you know, patterning deer and, and, you know, getting up high and using that tool is really, really beneficial. So observe, 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 What I'm going to (laughs) say
0: great advice. Uh, I think we're two peas in a pod and I mean, it's, it's easier out West for sure, but I do tons of glassing now, and, and that's been pretty effective for me also. So, hey, I just want to thank you again for your time. Uh, if you ever want to come back on, be glad to have you on again, and good luck this fall.
1: Yes, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it.